Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast, brought to you by Guts Racing, Fox Canada, as well as Fox Moto in the United States of America, and Alpine Star MX, Phoenix Handlebars on with us as well. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, this being episode 815 of the Big MX Radio Podcast. We thank everybody who's taking the time to join us and listen today. This podcast will be released Tuesday evening. If you're listening then, good evening. If you're listening on Wednesday morning on the way to work, have a fantastic day. With us on the line, someone who I've been wanting to have on the podcast but didn't want to reach out at uh, for, for the longest time. I don't know why it took me so long, but it finally did. And, and I'm glad I did because he's, he's a great conversation off air. He's going to be even better once we started recording this damn thing. Alexander Fry. Alex Fry, how's it going? Good. Good. Doing great. Can't complain. The uh, weather's nice. Spring's here. And, uh, you know, yeah, can't complain at all. Life's, life's good. Everyone's healthy. The family's good. So um, no complaints over here. No kidding. In 2021, in the time of COVID-19, that's really all we can ask for, uh, because basically that's all we're given. Um, but uh, um, Alex Fry, the 2016 250 Supercross Rookie of the Year, uh, but also a name that a lot of people might be uh, might scratch their heads because you like as far as motocross fans, a lot of us we only watch the pro scene. Uh, like not everyone digs into the amateur stuff as much as other people do. And, uh, and as far as your, like, you're kind of like a, a, a snapshot in time of as far as uh, how many races you did as a professional, very few, but you did have some success, including one top five. We'll get to that. But where does this story story begin with Alex Fry, um, riding dirt bikes, who introduced you to it? And, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take that story all the way to what you're doing now. Cool. So, yeah, this story goes all the way back to um, 2003. So I had um, then, you know, my dad, uh, as a way for me and my dad to become closer, um, my mom bought us bikes. So he had, when uh, Honda first came out with the uh, 450. And um, so, and then I also had an XR50. And so just started riding trails and and things of that sort. And, um, you know, as I became more serious and wanted to go faster, um, you know, and I was a bigger kid too, you know, what's crazy. I'm only five, six, but I used to be the tallest person in my class. And so, um, yeah, yeah. I peaked really early. And, um, so I hopped on a a KTM pro senior and, uh, there's a local scene around Southern Maryland area, um, called mama and mid Atlantic motocross association. And, um, basically started there, um, and what's known as the 50 B class. And that's kind of like the, uh, lower tier 50 class. And, and so, um, and this is 2000, late 2003, I'm going into 2004 and, um, just started racing locally, Bud's Creek, uh, Virginia Motorsports Park. Um, there's a Tomahawk. Uh, there's a few tracks down here in the mid Atlantic area that people would know that was racing. And, and I, I started progressing, uh, fairly quickly. Um, it was around, um, 2004 that my dad, uh, got rid of his bike and kind of just focused on, uh, developing me, um, because this is what I wanted to do. You know, I used to play football, basketball, things of that sort. And and at that point I had decided that I just wanted to focus on racing. And so he gave up, you know, obviously him having fun and, and, um, we got pretty serious, 
Um, so locally, you know, people would tell us, hey, you know, you got to make it to the regionals or, you know, um, you know, you got to do the area qualifiers, this and that. And so basically we, we started from, you know, I can remember going back to uh, just track in North Carolina called Devil's Ridge. And, you know, this had to have been 2004. I was only riding maybe, uh, ride or racing at least for about eight months. We went to area qualifying and, you know, I got smoked. But the thing was, is that um, this all motivated me and my dad to obviously um, start practicing a lot more, um, you know, training, things of that sort. And so I progressed very fast from 2004 to 2006. Um, so in 2006, uh, that was my first year at Loretta's, and I got a 10th in the uh, 50cc 7 to 8. And uh, so, yeah, it was great. You know, I was, uh, obviously, this is something that I love to do. Um, I was putting a lot of time and effort towards it. And uh, my dad, you know, obviously motivated by the results I was putting out and the progression, especially coming from the local level and then steadily progressing now to the national scene. Um, what's crazy is that the next, the very next year is when I win the Redis in the 65, 7 or 9, you know. Um, and so... Here we are just going to make another red is the first time and getting a 10th. And then the very next year is when I win it. Um, you know, so with perfect scores, had, I might also you know, add. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, hard to one, do one, one uh, that here. A moto, yeah. one moto and, a day, different conditions, like a million things can happen. Not, not only that, but you're also lining up with some of the fastest kids in the, in the country. Uh, of which included not only Jerry Robin, but also, I don't know if anyone knows this guy, but uh, Cameron McAdoo, 33rd overall. Uh, you had yourself quite the quite the week. Yeah, no, it's uh, what's funny is that, you know, that was off of it, ignorance. You know, me and my dad really didn't know what we were doing. You know, I'd go to uh, Ronnie Tishner classes and, and um, you know, I, I would jog every day and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that was just what we could do, basically. Practice, you know, maybe two to three times a week, go race. And then, you know, what's funny is I might have been at Loretta's, but it felt like a local race to me because that's just what I was used to doing. I was used to riding. Um, so it was it was a surprise, you know. And um, so, yeah, I progressed there. And, um, you know, I was also – I had been riding 85s for, for quite a while. Um, I want to say I had started riding. So that year that I made it to the seven, I won the seven to nine. I also raced the 85, seven, 11 as well. I think. Yeah. I'm amazed by and, that. Um, the fact that. You raced Loretta's on a 50 CC a year prior, basically like 12 calendar months before racing an yeah. 85 in the same class. Like, of course you get, uh, like obviously you didn't have as much success. A 15th in one moto. No. Pretty good. But in there with guys like AC, Cooper Webb. Um, yeah, it's go on. No, yeah. So I had, uh, you know, had a fair amount of experience on the 85, stuff like that. So going to the following year, you know, um, obviously, you know, I'd won the seven to nine. So the goal was obviously to win 65, you know, 10 to 11. Um, but what happened is that I. So weight was also also like a big struggle of mine all throughout my career, just like staying lean enough to obviously get good starts because especially on mini bikes, like it's so critical, 
you know, to, to winning races, especially races that aren't that long. And, and even at Loretta's too, a good start can, can really be the difference between winning a moto and, and coming up with like a fourth or, or fifth. And, um, so that, that, um, and that was 2008. I, uh, I got like a third in one of the, uh, nine to 11 motos. And, um, I actually ended up doing better on the 85 than I did the 65, which is, I was really disappointed with at the time. Um, and, uh, but, you know, obviously I had the talent. I kept progressing every year. Now, you know, obviously I'm going years and years at a time. Um, but in that, in that period at the next Loretta's, um, in 2009, I, um, you know, winning the, the second championship was a lot harder. I'll, I'll say. Um, so that, that year, um, I understood the weight of what I was doing. I understood like what was at stake and, and obviously the gravity of the situation, you know, that was the, that's the biggest difference. You, you know, you win it one time, but then, you know, you see how seriously everyone takes it, but then backing it up and winning it a second time, you know, it gets, it gets harder, you know, because the pressure is there. And so that year I, I had Chase Bell, um, Blake Green. Um, there were quite a few other really good guys in the 85, 9 to 11 that year. And um, I think I got one, two, one scores. And what was, what was really tough that year was uh, it was between me and Blake Green going in the last moto. And um, I got in like an eighth place start and Blake Green was already in second place. And so, um, you know, I was able to put down the lap times. Actually, I, I think I passed him with maybe four laps to go in that race. So I actually had to come from the back to try and win that championship. Cause he, you know, he was going to win it if I didn't beat him. And so, um, you know, again, I had shown that I was able to obviously perform under pressure. You know, I had shown consistency all the way from 2006 to 2009 that, you know, obviously we were doing all the amateur nationals. Lake Whitney, Oak Hill, uh, Minios, um, Ponca City <clears throat> in that time. And what's crazy is I still hadn't had a factory ride yet, you know, and with two Loretta Lens championships and obviously other ones at the other amateur nationals. And so finally, in 2006, I got picked up by Factory Suzuki. Or sorry, 2010, I got picked up by Factory yeah, Suzuki. Yeah, you're on KTMs in 09. Yeah, yeah, I was on KTM's pretty much the majority of my career. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, 2010, I got picked up by Factory Suzuki, and um, it was a struggle. Um, so it was new for me to have, obviously, sponsors like that. You know, as a young kid, you're very impressionable, and you kind of tie yourself to like Rockstar Energy Drink or. You know, obviously, you know, the different people that sponsors the team, you know, that almost becomes some of your identity mm-hmm. in a sense. And so it's a tough thing to go through when you're really young. And um, so I was, I struggled a lot mentally that year um, because, again, I, I knew I was a winner and I knew, knew I could put up the results. But, um, you know, new bike setup, I, I had um, used Pro Circuit at one point that year, you know, really trying to find the right motor guy and suspension guy was tough, especially with a new, new setup. And then, um, I had also suffered a, 
Oh, I forgot to say this as well. So the week before I won the Reddit in 2009, I dislocated my shoulder at Ponca City. And so Ouch. luckily that's, that didn't that's me That's crazy, out of, yeah. actually, because I literally dislocated my shoulder like three weeks ago. And I, or a month ago, actually. And I don't think I have any business getting on a dirt bike right now. So you're insane. Yeah. That's a yeah, month. that was, uh, and they, you know, they didn't knock me out or anything. They popped it back in on <sighs> the track. Ah! <laughs> You know, so yeah, that was a, so yeah, that's very important information. Cause yeah, I did, I dislocated it the week before at Concord City. So, um, so yeah, 2010 struggle year, you know, I'm growing, going through it, just trying to like kind of find my way. And, and obviously with the mental aspect and now finally being a factory rider, you know, after all this time and injury put in and not putting up the results, it, it was a lot. You know, and so 2010 was kind of a wash, in a sense. That that was a struggle year. And then going into 2011, um, I was in 85, 12 to 13, and um, also the uh, super mini class as well. And um, that year, you know, I did good at Daytona. I won Daytona. Um, you know, obviously didn't have any issues making it to Reddit's, but again, I just, I got hit in practice at Ponca City and dislocated my shoulder. And this time I wasn't able to ride it at all. You know, I can remember I'd spent the whole summer in Texas training with Sean Hackley. And, um, you know, I really put in a lot of effort as far as more seat time on the bike and, and trying to ride and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I kind of took the wind out of her sails trying to adjust. And what's crazy, after, my shoulder's still messed up from that, you know. Yeah, shoulders um, are bad. Like, it's a, it's a most, yeah. it's the most capable joint in the human body. It's also the most vulnerable. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, that shoulder's still messed up to this day. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so that was, that was a struggle, just trying to find my way with Factory Suzuki. And then obviously it was growing as well and you know borderline getting too big for 85 and super minis you know so that that was always kind of the the biggest struggle with with those bikes the suzuki was a it handled well but wasn't as fast as the ktm but the handling was was quite a bit better um and so yeah so that's pretty much 2006 to 2011 and um I didn't get homeschooled until 2011. So meanwhile, really? obviously okay. I was in school. Yeah, I was in public school up until 2011. And did, so... At that point, like, you know, did your... It was tough getting... Sorry to interrupt you. Like, did the... your no, no, like, The kids at school, do they, they know who the hell you are and and, and that you're pretty much a, a pretty pretty decent standout in, in this sport? Or what was the sort of... Uh, what was the scene like for that? And, and the fact that you were also doing quite well against a lot of kids who were getting homeschooled at the time. Yeah. So, um, the kids at school, they knew a little bit about motocross being in a rural area. People kind of tended to ride, but, um, it was kind of like almost lived a double life. You know, I go home and, and go to school during the week and obviously do school and stuff and be a regular kid. But then I was gone every weekend, you know, racing or, or riding or practicing. And so, and even to this day, people still don't understand kind of the weight of what I was doing and how deep I was in it, unless you're in it. You know, it's such a niche sport that 
if you're outside of it, you're like, oh, that, you know, it's cute. You know, you ride dirt bikes and stuff like that. And, and they think that, you know, you're just riding around your backyard and, and stuff like that. So the kids didn't really even, even know, they just knew that I was gone all the time riding and racing and stuff like that, but, um, didn't really see that side. And, but yeah, so, you know, here it is. I won two Loretta Lynn championships and all that while still in school. So again, yeah, the kids that were homeschooled and stuff like that, it, it definitely didn't look the greatest. Uh, I wasn't really able to ride that much, you know, still going to school, especially living in Maryland, the weather's not that great, especially through the, through the winter. And so, um, and there's not many places to ride, you know, this is kind of a developed area and it's gotten worse the past five years since I've been back. But, um, really I was winning, um, and doing that well in the amateurs just off of, obviously hard work and focus, but I just had talent as well. And so that, that, uh, helped, that definitely helped. And then I also had a lot of heart, you know, I'll say that, um, never gave up, you know, always gave it everything I had. And, and that kind of helped me persevere a lot and, and get over those hurdles. Um, and then, so leading into 2011 to 2012, um, you know, I was riding 125s, RM 125s then. And, I'm sorry um, to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, It was a tough... How would you get those man, things jetted? Was, uh, they handled great, but those things were jetted like crap. Yeah, the jetting, yeah, the jetting was tough. Um, I forgot some of the other issues that we had. But, yeah, we luckily we were able to still find some uh, at that point. That, At Travis uh, Pastrana's house? You're in Maryland, after all. Yeah. Yeah, so we found some there. There's another guy, Bobby Kinsley, that had a few of them just sitting in the crate still, too. And uh, we bought a few off him as well. And they're just hard to find. Yeah. And so riding RM125s, but also still on super minis. Now, super minis are very finicky. They're so – it's so hard to get a super mini that – Obviously, it's fast, but reliable. Yeah, because they're so, at the very edge. Like, those things are pushing the, like, the cylinder walls wafer thin. They're usually, like, 112, 115 yeah. sometimes. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was riding at 112. And, uh, um, you know, obviously, Adam, um, you know, Pro Circuit always had his, his bikes really good. And, and that was the other tough thing, too, was, like, and why we, you know, with Pro Circuit, you're like, man, you know, obviously Adam's bike is this and that. We're using Pro Circuit. Why why aren't our bikes, you know, obviously, you know, at that level? So that was a struggle as well. And we ended up using JGR, um, switching from Pro Circuit oh, okay. to JGR kind of midway, trying to uh, just need a motor. Like you need – it's so critical in the mini bikes, especially Super Mini and 85s just have a fast bike to get off the gate because uh, the, the start – just means so much like places like oak hill lake whitney you know they're all kind of deeper tracks and so if you get out front you can kind of just control the race and so that that's that's the struggle with mini bikes and so leading in 2012 on 125s and super minis full time and um you know it i was struggling because i was getting bigger and stuff like that so what's crazy is i had originally qualified for Loretta's and stuff like that on super minis. Cause I, I, you know, we, 
we came into the year with the intent that that would be my main focus, you know, and then 125s. But as it got towards April and May, the Super Mini just became such a he- headache that we abandoned it altogether, and I moved up to 250s, and that was uh, I was 15. And um, yeah, sorry, I was six. Yeah, I was 15. And so I had to read, go through all the area qualifiers, this and that. I was riding an RM250, and what's crazy, that thing was slow then and still slow now. I don't care what you <laughs> what you say. It's it's still just the motor just isn't enough. And uh, but obviously it still handles very well. Um, and so I qualified uh, for Loretta's in Schoolboy One and Schoolboy Two. And uh, I can say that year there's some heavy hitters in the Schoolboy Two class. You know we had guys like Thomas Covington. Yeah, RJ uh, RJ Hampshire is in there. Sinai yeah, is in Hampshire. there. Zach Commons. Yeah, Sinai. Yeah, Zach Commons. Yeah, I mean there was that was Jace a stack Sloan. class. Yeah, yeah, and Josh Osby was another guy. He almost yeah. won it, but then last moto he went down. I mean, so here I am. I was just on super minis in, in April, and now I'm on 250s with with grown men. You know, it felt like, you know, so it was a it was a huge step, um, kind of all at once. But you know, I adjusted, and then obviously the um, schoolboy one class. I forgot some of the names that were in that. Um, Jared Balkovic was really tough competition for a long time you you raced with him but, a lot uh, like I, i've I'm been coping through your your little wow loretta lynn's uh results here and and that's a name that keeps popping up one that i've like i've yeah no context as to who that is but uh, i think you guys traded paint uh at least five out of the seven years that you went oh yeah no we we have a long history that goes back to uh like 2007 yeah okay. jarek is uh, we were all friends, like our families are friends, but Jarek just raced so hard. And you can ask anyone that's raced Jarek. Like, I mean, if you were coming into the corner, you'd have to be so worried about him just T-boning you. You know, he, he was, uh, yeah, he was borderline dangerous guy. He's just like, man, like, you know, I forgot uh, we were at Mill Creek one year and uh, Lorenzo Licurcio, I guess, had passed him. And what's funny is Jarek, you know, they're going to the corner and there's an outside like berm or whatever. And Jarek's on the inside. He just decides to go straight and just punts them like off the track. And there's all uproar and stuff like that. So, yeah, he's a he's a very, uh, you just call him dirty. Yeah, he was really dirty. So, um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, he's just a dirty rider. But, um, so, yeah, going into that year, Loretta's, I forgot. I got a fourth in Schoolboy 2. I mean, Schoolboy 1, and then, like, a seventh in Schoolboy 2, I think. Um, and so I did well. I did really good for not having a lot of time on the bike. What's funny is we had looked at my hour meter um, after that whole year, and it only said something like 80 or 90 hours. So yeah, that's I low. Really hadn't for, a for as far as yeah, it's uh, super low. For, for at- Compared to the guys that you're yeah. racing with, a lot of those guys are 150 plus um, on exactly. their respective bikes. Yeah. So way, way more. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So with not a lot of time and you know put into it, you know I was getting obviously these results, and I kept kind of basically from the beginning of 2006 until that point. That's kind of like the the crux of my career is 
I just wasn't able to ride enough, you know, to get enough seat time in to really show obviously my true potential and, and what I could, could achieve. And so, um, you know, did well, obviously Loretta's Minio's it's the craziest thing. So, um, I knew and my family knew that four strokes are, are obviously very expensive and that by doing it pretty much alone, because obviously the economy had taken Suzuki pretty much to nothing, um, that we could effectively really only afford to do a year of B class, a year of A, and maybe a year of pro. You know, So I was looking at maybe only having three years left of riding and, you know, at that point. And we were in the pits at Minio's, and, um, you know, all of a sudden, Mike Sleater from KTM walks by, and he says, hey, do you, do you guys have a, have a ride? And um, my dad was like, no. And he's like, I'm going to be right back. And then he comes back with a um, a contract from KTM for Schoolboy 1 and Schoolboy 2. They were looking for a Schoolboy 1 and 2 rider. What's funny is they were going to give the other half to Ryan Surratt, but um, he turned it down. And so I ended up becoming their Schoolboy 1 and Schoolboy 2 rider. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was out of the blue. The craziest thing, you know, we were at the end of the ropes, you know, probably going to call it in the next couple of years, and, and Mike Sleater just happens to walk by and uh, totally changes the trajectory of my career. Now, a little more context is that KTM had already chosen Chase Bell at that point. You know, they were kind of – they were doing the JDR stuff and – and all that, and they kind of, they got gotten behind Chase, but um, obviously Chase got injured. You know, a lot of people may not even know Chase Bell, but... Yeah, they might know Zach, but they don't know the Chase most, very well unless they watch yeah, they a lot of Bird Moto videos. Yeah, and Chase was by far way more talented than Zach. You know, the, he just had the ability to just go fast. And on mini bikes, all that, I mean, there's probably videos of him beating Cooper Webb. Yeah, he gave AC fits for years. Yeah, so Chase Bell was no joke on many bikes. Um, it wasn't. I didn't get to finally catch back up to him until we got in the schoolboy. Um, you know, obviously 125s and 250s. So yeah, so that that's the start of getting back to KTM. It was kind of, um, you know, you want to say chance. I'd say it was God. You know that that gave me that opportunity, and uh, and then I ran with it. So. What was nice at that point is, uh, you know, I was a Fox rider. And Fox, Todd Hicks specifically, had, had seen that, obviously, I had the talent, but I just didn't have the ability to um, put in the time, you know. I didn't have a training facility, stuff like that, to, to train at. You know, my parents were not willing to drop me off somewhere and um, say, all right, train, you know. It was imperative that my dad be there with me you know, as an adult, you know, to help make sure that obviously, you know, I wasn't taken advantage of that. I got the things that were obviously in my best interest. And so Fox knew that I had the talent and then they put me in talks with uh, Miss Jeannie Carmichael. And um, so at Daytona that year, you know, I won the schoolboy one class. I got a second in or a third in schoolboy two, I think. And um, so that's the start of my relationship with Jeannie Carmichael and, and going to the farm. And that was 
spring of 2013. Um, okay, now, so when you get there, you, who's down, have, who else is down there training? Are you is that is that when Savachi had shown up there as well? No, no, that's that's a little ways after. So when I first okay. get down there, it's just me, Jeremy Martin, and Ryan Dungey. And I've heard of them. I literally live right. Yeah, I, I literally live next to Jeremy. Um, he had his RV there, and uh, and then Ryan would come back and forth uh, to the track, you know, during the days, and so it was just us three at the farm day in and day out putting in the time and and that was the first time i'd ever been on a actual like training training program where again miss genie made sure i did at least an hour of cardio every single day um they also were riding four days a week um and then you know again starting out with being in the gym also three days a week um, and then also just, uh, having a writing plan at the beginning of, you need to do this, this, and this at the end of the week. So I was on a, finally on a structured plan, you know? And, um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you ever get the chance to ask, talk to Jeremy, um, you know, he'll, he'll recount those, those, those days. Cause it was a hot summer and uh, we spent a lot of hours doing motos, uh, Miss Jeannie, you know, even though I was doing, you know, only 20 minutes to Loretta's, uh, she started having me do 40 minute motos, you know, when, when I was out there. And, and, um, so I obviously went through the, um, area qualifiers regionals, you know, no issues there. I won those, um, you know, progressing very well. And then it's like July, oh, late June. And we're doing a section and, uh, while trying to get off the track and, and get back to the other section, because Miss Jeannie, we'd work like 35 minutes, 40 minutes on a corner. I like slid out and it caught and high-sided me and I broke my wrist in June. And so I go to this guy, Dr. Berg in Tallahassee. And um, he just basically, he gets me in the, in the room. This is maybe only hours after me breaking it. And he just kind of puts it together, put it in a cast. And he's like, all right, I'll see you in four weeks, <laughs> four to five weeks. So, you know, fast forward, you know, I'm still training, stuff like that, just trying to stay in shape. You know, right. the plan is to still go to Loretta's. You know, the plan is to still go out. I've put in so much effort and time. And so four four weeks later, takes the cast off. And, um, you know, meanwhile, the bone's still sticky. So around five weeks, um, I, I get back on the bike. This is early July. I was going to say three and, weeks before um, Loretta's. Yeah, this is three weeks before Loretta's. So you can even ask the bells. So it was raining a lot down in Georgia at that time. So um, to get back on the bike, I started riding at Chuck Bell's place down in Cairo. And uh, it was a struggle. I can't tell you how much pain I, I was in just trying to ride. And I was suffering from really bad carpal tunnel. So it'd be like maybe 10 or 15 minutes in Domoto, and I just couldn't feel my right hand at all. Like it just, it would go numb. So I was having to battle through that. I was having to battle through Miss Jeannie, obviously trying to get me to get back to doing at least 20 minute moto. So, you know, I'm like, man, Miss Jeannie, I can't feel my hand. Like, um, I'm tired of this and that. I'm trying to get back in shape and also just trying to mediate the pain in my wrist. And also right. knowing that Loretta is only three weeks away. It was a lot at once. And so it was, what's crazy is that 
almost won the championship that year. And I was actually disappointed that I didn't win the schoolboy one championship that year. You know, if I, I think I fell over the last moto. It was a much, it was a pretty muddy moto and I lost it to um, Ryan, Ryan Surratt, who ended up winning the uh, schoolboy one and schoolboy two classes that year. And so a lot of people really obviously didn't know that I broke my wrist three weeks before and how much of a struggle it was, but yeah, I was in a lot of pain and, and that wrist, uh, the carpal tunnel, it followed me for quite a bit. I couldn't get rid of not, you know, losing um, feeling in my hands. So I'd be obviously doing motos and then, yeah, get in like 20, 25 minutes and I can't even feel my hand anymore. I'm just kind of going off how the bike feels. So that was a, that was a huge struggle. But yeah, so that showed that with now me finally on a program, the type of results I could put put up. Right. I'm now finally I'm training, you know, um, I'm riding consistently, putting in the hours and, and you know, I'm showing that hey, I, I can put the results up. So you know, I'm now living in Cairo, Georgia and um go to Minios and I win the schoolboy one. So Supercross I didn't do as well as I was like. My starts weren't great, but um you know, now I, factory KTM this is the start of the orange brigade days right and they put us under the tent and uh FMF uh orange brigade and so um what I can say is that uh you know I progressed I won three championships that year at Minios and um you know carried that momentum that I had for Minios into the next year where I you know it was my 250b class year I was first year being a Red Bull athlete and um basically I won um what's funny in the year twenty fourteen I did eighty two races in one year. What? We always talk about yeah, how you 82. guys don't do any racing. Everyone talks about how the amateurs don't race. No. Well, we, me and my dad we were racing almost yeah, every weekend. Wow. Because our our thing was that it was by, it's by racing that you practice is always hard. So racing becomes easy. That becomes like the fun days. Sundays and Saturday, that's like the easy day. <laughs> Obviously, as a pro, it's a lot different. But when you're an amateur, like you can, it's such great practice to try and find the competition and, and race them, you know, week in and week out. We would do the Gold Cups in Florida, uh, the Winter Ams. We'd always be down in down south you know monster mountain places like that just racing constantly and so yeah i did 82 races in the year of 2014 and um you know i won daytona i won freestone um i won uh yeah i won daytona and freestone and then going into uh the regionals now this is where kind of charbonneau comes in because charbonneau is always kind of a crooks in, in my side because what was really kind of frustrating around about Tristan is that he had no work ethic. He just had so much talent. Like that became abundantly you, clear could, in my interview with him. Yeah. <laughs> like if there is any, if he would have put, if he would have had my work ethic with his talent, he would have been unstoppable, but I always knew that he was inherently lazy. So, but he started working that year. He started working with a guy, Rob, and that year, Tristan kind of went on a tear for about four or five months. 
because he had gotten serious about training, eating right, and stuff like that. And um, he just got really hard to beat, really hard to beat. And it started maybe in, in June. And then he carried that, obviously, into Loretta's in 2014 when he won the uh, 250B and um, um, the 450B class. But, you know, that obviously I was competitive, you know, silly progress. You know, that's also the year that Factory KTM um, signed me to as a professional as well was at Loretta's in 2014. And, and, you know, there's lots of other battles. I mean, even though I was on a factory team and had all this great equipment, um, bike setup, we struggled. You know, they would – I think what a lot of people don't realize and is that, you know, they give you all this great stuff, right, but if it's not set up and stuff like that, it does you no good, and it's actually worse. And so I struggled with bike setup a lot. I can't tell you how – because I rode KTM the majority of my career, like – I understand the bike characteristics, like the back of my hand, and I'll be the first to tell you that through the bumps, that bike is the most unsettled thing, like, you will ever ride. It just, you can't, and this is, you know, obviously when I was riding with uh, Jeremy Martin and then Joey Sabachi, uh, those guys, like, their bike, it was just always be so much more settled through the chop than mine, like, especially the Yamaha, like, Jeremy's bike, it just sets so well where I would just kind of struggle just trying to keep the rear end from just kicking, you know, or deflecting. Like, it, it's just a bike characteristic, you know. It's just the way it is. And, and so that was always a struggle, just trying to get that under control. Was there ever and a so, time when you jumped on their bikes? Like, I don't, like, that's not something that gets talked about a lot, but is there, like, hey, let me, let me give this Yamaha a shot. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Jeremy's knocking down 250 championships. Yeah, no, yeah. No, there wasn't a time that I hopped on his bike. Jeremy's so small. I mean, Jeremy's only like 135 pounds, and wow. I, I'm like 165. Yeah, Jeremy's Jeremy's like 135. <laughs> Is this, like, yeah, him and his brother are like little monkeys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I remember, you know, we shared a washer and dryer, and you take Jeremy's pants out the, out the washer, and they're like little kid pants. You know, he was so small. But what a lot of people don't know that played so much into Jeremy's favor because what happens midsummer, he just takes so much less time to recover. And so he can continue to go hard when we're in June, July, August, and it's like dead meat of the summer. And that's, that's his advantage and why Jeremy is, he, you know, he's so hard to be outdoors. And it's, he even knows Jeremy knows when he hops on the gate that his fitness is going to get him into the top 10 no matter what. <clears throat> yeah. Because, he, he, you know. There isn't 10 so other guys brutal. that can go that long, like, go that fast that long. Yeah, and and what what's hard to describe is that when it's late July and you have four rounds outdoors left and um, and you're tired, you're actually tired. How do you, how do you, Try obviously. What if you're not getting the results you want on the weekend? How can you tell someone that I need a break, right, to recover? But then you're also not getting the results you should, and they're like, you need to go harder. You know, that's the whole like crux of the the whole situation that gets hard, which we'll get into later. But um, I carried obviously that speed into uh, into 2014 in the A class. Um, 
where, you know, I was racing Daniel Baker, Darren Sinai, um, Tristan Charbonneau, those guys. And I was able to walk away with three out of four championships in outdoors. And I think I podium in one of the Supercross races as well. <clears throat> so doing well, you know, I'm uh, showing I got the speed, consistency, things like that. Um, and then uh, we we hop into 2015. So we had ramped down training after many of those in 2014. And, and um, you know, kind of to recover, take a break. It had been a long year. Enjoy Christmas. And, uh, yeah, actually enjoy Christmas. And I get a call from James Coy at the beginning of January, like, hey, we need you to do arena cross. And prior to that, I didn't have any experience really on supercross you know not any real supercross what's funny is it was miss genie that taught me how to do whoops and you know she she's never ridden and so um i had a lot you know it was a struggle to try and get ready for arena cross so you know i got back on the bike they sent me like a supercross setup and you know we just hopped on a, a supercross track at the farm and just tried to somewhat get together I mean, you can probably look at the amount of crashes that I had in arena cross and stuff like that. It was brutal. You and know, that was specifically to get your cross. points or just because they wanted you to race yeah. arena cross? No, that was to get supercross points. Yeah, that's a dumb That's when they started ever. that whole, yeah, they started that whole dumb, like, road to supercross thing, which really threw off the entire career and probably my, my professional career as well. Um, it it kind of followed us. Because, uh, you know, obviously I had the good momentum coming in from 2014, but arena cross just set us off uh, on the wrong note. You know, I crashed a lot. Um, you know, I actually ended up chipping, like, my L4 in my back. And, uh, you know, just had some really bad crashes. But, you know, I got my points. And, and then here we are at Daytona. And uh, I got landed on in practice and um, dislocated and broke my pinky. And so that took me out until the um, beginning of, you know, I was like, all right, we'll rest up, get ready for outdoors. You know, this is my professional year. And, um, you know, I went to the National Muddy Creek. I was like in, I think, eighth, the first lap, and then just got hit, and it totally mangled my bike. And so that was DNF that one, and then I got, I think, a 19th in the second moto. And then fast forward to high point, and uh, I think I went down first moto and came back. I got like hard charger, you know, hard charger award, whatever they gave out for passing so many people. And then second moto got cut off and dislocated my wrist. So then I'm out. Then I'm out again, you know. And I don't come back until uh, when was it? Six I didn't months come later. Back. Six weeks later. Yeah, uh, eight weeks yeah. later in in August. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and all, yeah, Unadilla. So I'm just trying to like rebuild myself, and this all started from the beginning of the year. You know, it just obviously this is my first, uh, you know, professional year, half year, and um, just battling injuries, just trying to rebuild. So 2015 was kind of like a a wash, and obviously a most very critical time to come out swinging as a professional. You know, it's very important to get up front you know, right away. And so um, then they went through the whole thing of getting rid of the Orange Brigade and my contract was set for me to go over to Troy Lee Designs. 
uh, KTM. And so I started in August or September. I went out to California. I left the farm, you know, after four years, had to pack everything up and left the farm and um, went to uh, California with uh, the Start with the Trilly Designs team. And, um, <clears throat> you know, they had had like a preconceived notion about me in the sense of, oh, he crashes a lot and this and that. And so what's funny is like the first four weeks was me just like having to like prove my ability in a sense, especially after everything that I'd done up, up until that point, you know, which was, you know, really unfortunate in a sense. And, and so, you know, I started on Supercross and, and uh, I was also working with Tyler Rattray as well. So I had to, I had to leave the farm. TLD wanted me on California. Um, and so, you know, the wonderful thing about motocross is that um, when you don't have the results, you really don't get any say. You just kind of do what they tell you to do. And so, um, you know, the best thing for me, and obviously if I wanted to get re-signed, was to uh, go out to California and obviously prove myself in a sense. And so we put in a lot of work. You know, I'm still thankful for all the stuff Tyla helped me out with. And, uh, and again, I leaned out a lot. Um, he kind of got us on a program similar to, to um, Alden. And then, um, you know, we put in a lot of work that to get ready for Supercross. You know, I, I was working with Billy Leninovich as well, which, you know, if anyone knows Billy, great Billy's guy. probably one of the most talented guys. Yeah. Always look good on a bike. One of the most talented guys you'll see. Yeah. You know, style, everything. So um, me and Billy, we, we grew really close, and he helped me out a lot just with whoops, thinking about the track. Um, techniques, stuff like that. I can't thank Billy enough for, for the time we spent together. And so, um, you know, here we are, slowly progressing, October, um, you know, November. I'm on the team. It's me, Justin Hill, Jesse Nelson, um, Mitchell Oldenburg, and myself. And, um, yeah, so we're tr all training together. Uh, Tyler Rattray, I work with Billy Leninovich on techniques, stuff like that. And it's nice. You know, it's obviously very competitive, and we're all trying to one up each other and get better. But it, it was a it was a good environment. Um, you know, amongst we had a team. We were also Dino was uh, riding. This was back when Davy Millsaps was still as well. So we'd all be training together uh, under Tyler. So it was a good group of guys uh, that we had. And um, so yeah, I progress obviously all the way up until. Um, it was Atlanta. Yeah, that was my first uh, ever Supercross. And I got a fifth in the heat race. And um, I got a tenth or ninth in uh, the main event, my first ever Supercross. And so what's funny is people had discounted me so much that they didn't even think I would make the main event, which was like, wow, you know, um, especially for someone like myself with such a history in the sport. Um you know, it's definitely surprising, but um, yeah, I I did well, very well. My first Supercross, I stayed off the ground. Um, I wasn't the fastest in practice. I was kind of frustrated about that, but um, you know, I, I progress. And so then Daytona, I crashed bad in the main um, there, so I didn't finish. And then I got like a sixth in uh, St. Louis. Fourth in Toronto. Um, 
Let's talk about that fourth. You're, you're, you're skipping over some stuff here, man. Fourth in Toronto. That's pretty solid. And also, like, do you what? What's uh, you got to have a Justin Hill story from riding KTM's? First of all, that kid's an absolute wackadoodle. Like, he's just an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in whatever Justin Hill puts out his music. Tell me about this. Yeah. Yeah. So Justin Hill is a good dude. I think that you. The media on side. Um, Justin was one of the few guys in the team that kind of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, especially with Supercross. What a lot of people don't see is like how talented that kid is at Supercross. I mean, the the bike skill that he has and his ability to eye something up, whoops, his commitment, things like that, I think can't be understated. Um, and so I learned a lot from him. You know, I'll, I'll say that, you know, you can say whatever you want about his work ethic, things of that sort, but as far as pure talent on a bike, especially Supercross, I mean, he, he's one of a kind and, and I can't thank him enough. And obviously his dad and his mom and everyone else, like, um, for, cause he was on East coast with me, um, for kind of being a big brother in the sense of, of showing me the ropes, you know, it was, a at that time, you know, obviously the culture under the tent was that we, we want to win races. And, and so he was the guy to win, right? Coming into that year, they were expecting Justin Hill to, to win the Supercross championship. So when we were in Detroit and uh, he went down and got a concussion, all that pressure went to me and Shane McElrath. But Shane was just coming off of um, injury. And then I was just a rookie. So here we are, we have corporate KTM and, and Roger and Ian and, and the rest of the guys now putting all this pressure on us to produce results. So it, it got very hard. I, I don't, I'm, I'm, there's probably not a lot of people that will understand that type of pressure that comes with me lining up on the weekend and, and seeing, you know, obviously we got all the team personnel um, and, and your job is is to put it up front, especially as something as a rookie where you just don't know. You know, there's a lot of unknowns. So that was a that was a tough environment. And you know, now I'll talk a little bit about Toronto. So Toronto was a pretty gnarly track that year, I'll say. Out of all the supercrosses, that one was there was two pretty big sets of whoops and the rhythms were pretty big too. And um, you know, I still talk to my dad about this to this day. So the whole first practice, I didn't even hit one of the sets of whoops because I just like I never hit one that big in practice, you know. And I came off after the first free practice, and uh, you know, I told my dad, I was like, man, I'm I'm kind of scared, you know, I'm kind of nervous. Like, it is a lot. And so, imagine being in a space where you have to perform. You don't have a choice. There's no like, hey, dad, let's just go home. No, it. You know, this is this is what we got to do. You know, whether you're scared or not, you got to perform. And so, um, that's a little behind the scenes, obviously, of what I was going through mentally. But you know, obviously, I got the whole shot and um, whole shot in the main event. And um, you know, if I was a little bit faster, a little bit put together, I should have had third. Um, but you yeah, know, I'm very happy with that yet. result. Yeah, exactly. So it was. Uh, you know, it, it is what it is looking back, but it, it was a, 
it was a great night, obviously. Me and my dad, I remember we couldn't sleep just from, from all the energy. I think uh, not a lot of people understand the type of energy it's like to be on the floor of a stadium with that many people in it. You know, you really can't even hear the bike. It's crazy the, the amount of energy and, and adrenaline that you have going. But yeah, that was a that was a great night. Obviously, show that you know I could do it. Finish main events, not crash out, you know. But again, that's just one weekend. The wonderful thing, uh, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. But with motocross, you're only as good as your last race. So you got to constantly, you know, continue to put those type of results up. And um, so, again, I'll uh, fast forward. You know, finish out the Supercross season. Um, got rookie of the year which was great. And um, what's funny is I rode Supercross from September all the way through April. So I had been on a Supercross track a long, yeah. long a period of time. I remember at the end. Six yeah. Months. Yeah, I had been on Supercross for a while. And so I was definitely ready for outdoors, stuff like that. And, but outdoors is only like two weeks away from the end of the Supercross season. So you really only got two weeks and and, you know, obviously we're doing remotos, things of that sort. And, um, you know, obviously the goal is to always do better than I did the year before. And so coming into Hangtown, um, you know, obviously I had people like Tristan Charbonneau, who had just gone pro, uh, a couple other kids. And, you know, it's a stacked gate. It's, it's really hard to, you know, if you're in the top 10, especially in the 250 class or pro national, you're a bad dude. It's a... Uh, there's so many good guys and it's so close and it's so tight that, um, yeah, it's, it's brutal. And so, yeah, it was nice to get a 10th, the first moto hang town. And then I think I got a 14th, a second moto. So big improvement from the year before. Again, yeah. As far as you, you doing know, nationals. Yeah, yeah. Big improvement from the year before. And then came back at Glen Helen the next weekend. And I think I had like a 14th and a 16th at that time. Um, now, mind you, Glen Helen was sketchy that year. That was that's when they you, built you the really world's biggest understand. jumps. That's when they just like were yeah, just building was, them, deal with it. Yeah, and then they put this like this wall, and I remember like Christian Craig got destroyed on it. Uh, Charbonneau went down and broke his collarbone. It was just like they just obviously from the fans' perspective, it's great. You know, you see all this action. It just seemed like they would make things that just like were almost dangerous for no reason, <laughs> in a sense. And so, uh, yeah, that was a wild, wild race. And then, yeah, that following week, <clears throat> you know, I was at Paula doing obviously her motos, things about that sort. And I, I went up to scrub a jump in the front end push, and uh, then it just kind of caught on the on the lip of it and just kind of tossed me off like Chad Reed style. And in mid Millville, and then you know, next thing I know, I woke up on the side of the track, and you know, I I had been knocked out cold and stuff like that. And overall, I felt fine. The only thing was just my knee. You know, that was the that was the thing that I couldn't. You know, for some reason, it was swollen. So I was like, oh, you know, maybe I just hit my knee, nothing like that. And then when it got an MRI, it turned out I tore my ACL. So that was uh, you know, pretty much all she wrote. As far as that, so I had to go and uh, go to a guy over in uh, Orange County. I, I'm forgetting his name, but um, and he fixed up my ACL, and you know she's great. He did such a great job. You know I have no issues with my knee now. I'm really really glad we 
we used him. And, um, yeah, so I had gone, you know, obviously to KTM to see, hey, you know, this is the end of my contract year. Uh, what's next? You know, we we understand, hey, like, you know, we got rookie of the year. We've shown progress, this, this, and that. You know, how are we looking uh, for next year? And um, Tyler Keith said, and, you know, my dad was, was there too. We literally sat down and he just said he didn't have anything for me. And that was it. And, um, you know, I'll remember that day for the rest of my life. You know, it was a day that um, I grew up all at once. You know, it was, it was a, I guess you could say it was a traumatic experience. Um, but it's something that happens to you and you, it, it basically defines kind of where, how you move from there on out. And, um, you know, yeah, it just kind of changed my whole outlook, you know, on, on what I was doing in the sport. You know, I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, you know, you should continue, you should keep going, you know, maybe try and get other teams to look at you and things of that sort. But um, when you put as much time and effort as I did and, and the sacrifices my family made and and you put 14 years worth of effort and a guy can look at you without blinking and say, yeah, that, you know, that's all we got. Um, you start to rethink your priorities, you know, especially with how dangerous this sport is. You start to rethink, you know, I got to start taking care of Alex. You know, I got to start doing what's in the best interest of Alex because obviously I have no job security in the sense of that someone can just decide my fate in seconds, you know, and so you realize that and um, it changes your outlook on things. And um, here we are, you know, what's funny, right? I, I was looking at this. Um, couple weeks ago you know I have it at the house so I had um you know I was in Southern California at the time and obviously had that meeting with Tyler Keith and and stuff like that and um basically we you know started packing up and and went back home you know first time being back in Maryland in in a long time and uh, I started over completely I um enrolled in community college that um no less than three weeks later, and uh, I started to pivot. What's funny is I went to the national, um, Bud Creek National, later that year, you know, obviously to talk to everyone and things like that. And, um, yeah, I had, uh, you know, I was telling them about school and stuff like that, uh, what I was trying to do next. And, and, yeah, I just completely pivoted away from motocross, obviously focus on the rest of my life in the sense because, Again, you, you get to that point and you invest all that time and you see the sacrifices and things that your parents go through and and the money they spent. And here I am, 14 years in, I've given up everything I, I possibly can. You know, lots of lonely days at the farm, you know, by myself, not in school, anything like that. And it can just be decided in, in a few seconds. Why would it, why would you even continue to do that? For what? You know? So, yeah, you, everyone eventually gets to that crossroad. But, yeah, for me, it was like, yeah, I got I to gotta start um, thinking about what's going to be in the best interest of Alex, you know? No, I, I, I totally yeah. hear that, man. Like, it, like I, they always say there's a kind of a famous 
saying that uh, we're all told when it's time to uh, to hang it up. Uh, sometimes it's it's after uh, a 250 Rookie of the Year season and, and what you thought was going to be uh, the start to a great career. Sometimes you're told uh, when your bike throws you to the ground uh, at the last second last Supercross of the year, a la Martin Davalos, uh, after a long career. Uh, of doing exactly that but either way you're always told and um it's it's really cool that uh, i think you were able to sort of recognize that and to be able to switch gears so quickly like there's so many guys i can think of who um find themselves in a situation like yours and, and then they spend the next five six years sort of i would say like kind of, kind of gypsying around if that makes sense like just sort of uh yeah, like a cup of coffee here, seven races there, a German champion, like German Supercross season there, and and they just sort of keep the dream alive until it's time to go sell insurance. And um, yeah, it, it's cool to see that you were able to sort of um, switch gears like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. You know, it's like being in a long relationship and then it's just over. You know abusive relationship um, perhaps (laughs) yeah yeah and an abusive relationship yes exactly and you're so emotionally tied and and that's your identity right so just think my whole identity is tied to dirt bikes up until that point and now i had to try and craft it a new one you know a totally different person what's funny is that you know meanwhile obviously i'm motocross deep down inside but I had never imagined having conversations with people about things other than dirt bikes. You know, that was so foreign to me, you know, to even be in an area where people don't even know a thing about dirt bikes was so foreign to me. And, and yeah, like you said, it, it, everyone's got to make that decision. And what happens, the sport is so addictive that I'm not going to lie. It's scary to leave. It's scary to know that, out in the real world that honestly no one cares no one cares that i was rookie of the year no one cares that you know i did this doesn't matter these results that only matters in this little bubble and so it's scared scary to leave i'm gonna be honest it's uh it's a sobering thing to realize that meanwhile i put these 14 years in but i don't have anything to really put on my resume when i go to get a job mm-hmm. you know i don't have anything to really show for in a sense, I don't have a degree. I, you know, luckily for me, my parents had kept me in high school, but I didn't finish high school until my career ended. You know, I still had to finish a few classes up, you know, majority of guys never even finished school, you know? And so it's, it's scary and I I get it. You know, I totally do, but um, it's, it's too dangerous of a sport and there's too many guys, you know, and obviously I skipped over the part of, you know, obviously my teammate Jesse got paralyzed that same year. Yeah, you were know, you there at that it, race? Or were you no, hurt I wasn't prior? You got race. hurt beforehand. No, he um he I was I got hurt beforehand. Yeah. And see, and and this is the thing, the culture thing. They like I was saying, the corporate pressure to to get results. You know, there's a lot of pressure on the riders to get back out there and, and get ready. And to put up results. And Jesse had had a bad crash right before A1 that year. He'd hit his head really badly. And um, it was just a whole culture thing that, unfortunately, obviously, 
I still had Falk behind me. I had Cantrell behind me. Um, oh, Eric yeah, Drake. Falk. You literally you know, just reminded me of all... another guy that just flashed in the pan. Yeah. So, and, and these are all talented guys, Red Bull guys. These are all guys that are supposedly bring up and, and and grow as riders. And and I wasn't the first, right? And so, by me, obviously, kind of thinking that, hey, I, I got to start taking myself. I mean, taking care of myself, it uh, it changed it. Where are those guys, you know, we got to be honest here. If you're not on factory equipment, you just are not in the position to compete at this level. It's this. What a lot of people don't understand is that, yeah, you can build a fast race bike, right? But if you don't have 200, 300,000, right, sitting in the bank to make maintain your practice bike to those levels to where you can put four days a week of training on the bike all the way up until A1 and all the way through the rest of the season, you're just not going to be at that level. That's the That's the biggest difference. I can afford to ride Supercross from September all the way until April four days a week because of the resources of the team. Just think of how many hours, you know, they're switching out frames, they're switching out motors, they're switching out tires, all that stuff. So when you think about that and you, and you understand that side of it, you realize that unless you have the support, what are you really hoping to do? You know, at that point, you're just hoping for a participation of, of being on the gate. And so, you also just kind of got to be realistic, you know, and, and that's kind of what I had to had to think about. Yeah, and, and that's fair, man. Like it, it's uh, like your your childhood a lot different than uh, than a lot of other kids growing up. Obviously, you got to do a lot of really cool things. You probably also missed out on a lot of cool things as well. Uh, with like just the the typical growing up and like school, like obviously you went to high school uh, quite a fair bit, but then like, I, I'm no, sure no. you weren't like going to, to high school bush parties and, and, and chasing girls. Although I'm sure there were probably girls that were chasing motocross racers. Um, but um, yeah, the things are very, very different for you. And uh, I think that's, uh, like you said, it's tough to walk away from at some point. Yeah, no, it's uh, again, I'm not bitter at all. I'm actually very, happy and thankful because what's uh, nice is that all those trials and tribulations and things I've went through, um, they've made life now so much easier. You know, I have two 40 minute motos and 110 degree heat in the middle of Georgia to use as a benchmark for what's hard. You yeah. Know? No, I, I, to I totally agree with that. Like <laughs> I, I say the same thing when I'm at a job interview right now for an office position after coming off 12 years of laying bricks for a living, I'm like, I don't want to minimize what those people do for a living, but I'm like, well, based on where I'm coming from, this ain't hard. Yeah. You know, it, it's made it to where, you know, mechanical engineering school, you know, obviously it's a lot of math and physics and stuff like that, but in comparison to how hard it is day in and day out to be a professional motocross racer, it's way easier and, um, you know, the benefits are a lot better. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, there's actually a pension program. I mean, what, what, what was the, the pension program over at TLD KTM? Oh, there's none. We're just oh, there's, we, that's odd. That's, I'm shocked to hear that. Okay, oh, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. And, you know, even the mechanics, 
<laughs> they're not even employees. They're just contractors. Yes, independent contractors. And you know what? I don't want to do the whole podcast and just like basically shit on the sport of motocross and kind of take the shine off for those who are listening. But this is the reality of it: is that there that Supercross, motocross in general, all prof- actually, you know what? Professional sport in general is a meat grinder. I like while you were telling your story here today, I basically kind of like went through your your results and I made a list. And I think there's at least ten guys on here that had an unbelievable amount of support and talent and. and like kind of star-studded careers in the amateurs who basically just did not pan out. Like guys like Bradley Taft, Blake Green, John John Ames, uh, Chase Bell, Darian Sinai to a lesser extent, Mark Worth, Tristan Charbonneau, uh, Chris Aldridge, Challen Tennant, Zach, Zach Commons, Landon Courier, um, Daniel Baker, and the list goes on. You've, you've probably named 10 other guys that, that I, uh, that I missed in there. And, um, the reality is, is that uh, like as much as you you hit your wagon to this sport and you want to be successful in it, um, there's only so many spots on the podium. And, and then when you get to the pros, uh, you get to deal with all the other guys who are still trying to make it happen as well. So uh, it, it, it's extremely tough. And um, oh, yeah. but but at, at the end of the day, I think you you also happy that you got to experience it. You got as many skull candy headphones as you could possibly ever deal with, uh, and some memories along to go along with it. Yeah, no, it's uh, super happy and thankful for all of it. It's, um, like I'll say, the biggest takeaway is just just stay true to yourself. You know, if I could do it all over again, I'd, I'd do it again. Um, the cool. thing is, is just staying true to who you are and, and why you're doing this. And if you're going to do it, do it at 100%. You know, don't take any shortcuts. And then you just, the key is just knowing when it's time to walk away. That's that's all it is. Not that it's bad or anything like that. It's just knowing yourself and knowing when it's time to walk away. That's the biggest thing. That's true. You're totally right, man. And honestly, like I'm glad you were able to sort of recognize that, move forward. And if I'm not mistaken, you said that you have a, a degree in mechanical engineering. That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, it uh man, I uh obviously I told you I had to finish up high school and all that and so I had to get all the mathematics and stuff like that and kind of rebuild myself but i said this time if i'm gonna do do degree i'm gonna make sure i have some job security <laughs> so it was like uh you know when you go to the college you can say oh mechanical engineering that's the hardest you know engineering in general that's the hardest degree you can get here and this and that but um in compare you know it's mindset and i learned that from motocross and anyone else in motocross can understand you know when you're tired when you're burnt out and and um, you push through the pain, you know, to, to get better, you know, you can relate that to anything in life. And so that's, that's propelled me, obviously, to this point of, of being a mechanical engineer. So um, for sure, yeah, I'll be riding and, and having fun. But the nice thing is that uh, I got a day job to fall back on and, and uh, do other things, you know. 100%. No, I totally agree with that. And the fact that you were able to, to take those struggles and then just repurpose them take those lessons learned from from every time that your your legs were burning and you're you're sweating buckets and you're you're just you're looking for a white flag and you don't get it and you got to go one more lap before you get it um those struggles are are, are what te- is i think some of maybe the 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 best 
uh, takeaways from the sport of motocross is, is just finding out what you're made of. And then once you find that out, being able to apply that to, to conquer bigger things in your life, like, like being a parent and, 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 and fighting through relationship stuff and, and, and like, you know what I mean? Working through things yeah. that, that otherwise people, other people, they, they don't have the, honestly, I don't, they struggle to find the tough toughness for, and, and that's really cool oh, that yeah. you're able to basically, uh, uh, convert some of those lessons into uh, something that you can use later on. Yeah, yeah, no, without a doubt, it's uh, everything parallels. You know, your your habits, the things you do on the track, um, things you build, um, they're directly applicable to many situations in life, and and that's again why the value in doing it and doing it at the level that I did is that um, it's made now. Um, so much easier, you know, but the hardest part is starting, you know, that's, that's the hardest thing, knowing when it's time to stop. Fair enough, man. Well, uh, I'm, I'm at, at some point this, this podcast has to stop because I'm sure you got some other shit to yeah, do yeah, with, yeah. Uh, this particular day. Um, but a couple of things I wanted to talk about before I let you go is you got a chance to run the number one plate for your country at a race, not only, uh, on the international stage, but also get to rip a really nice looking two stroke and um, on top of all that. So maybe take us through that a little bit and being teammates with yeah. one John, John Ames at the, I think it was a amateur world championships. Yep. Yeah. Junior world um, motocross championships. And uh, yeah, so we had John, John um, the year before Chase Sexton and uh, Sean Cantrell were on the team. Okay. So there's a, there's a lot of, there's some good guys, obviously you're still racing today that were on the junior MX stuff, but yeah, no, we uh, showed up to Belgium and the nice thing, um, the KTM factory wasn't far. So they were able to uh, bring the WP guys, the uh, motor guys, and, and obviously the bikes and rig. And basically my job was just to show up and, and race. And, and um, all I got to say is, you know, there's a huge difference between the racing in Europe compared to the U.S. You know, over here, we like our tracks groomed and, you know, watered and all that. Man, the stuff they ride over there is totally different. And and what happens, and the, the toughest thing for me is um, their technique, especially on 125s at that age, is so much so far advanced than what we have over here because they're used to riding just terrible conditions terrible hmm. i mean they um and so the toughest thing about there in belgium was this track was straight shale like the bottom of the the ruts were just rocks it was just rocks i actually Super had to run a moose yeah i had to run a moose in the rear tire just because the rocks were so bad like that that 125 it looked great but after being that after that weekend the thing was yeah it was destroyed oh man from all the rocks but um yeah, they're so passionate about motocross. I love the energy over there too, of um, just all the riders. But um, yeah, to have the opportunity, obviously, to wear the number one plate and represent the USA, and then obviously win, man, it's it's something that I still tell about tell people about uh, today. You know, it was uh, it was an honor and something that'll obviously stick with me the the rest of my life. And and uh, yeah, very thankful for that experience. Fair enough, and then that's really cool, man. Anytime that you get to wear the red, white, and blue, represent the country, that's got to be cool. 
Um, now, completely different topic. Uh, and for those who uh, aren't super familiar with with you, your career, or anything like that, uh, they um, they might not even know um, that you're black. And uh, is that something yeah. that ever like did you did you experience a, a, a lot of racism or anything like that? I don't even know if you want to talk about this. But it's something that was more or less like not that I expected to be a thing, but I'm more or less curious as to how much of that you faced, yeah. um, and and whether or not that was that like was a contributing factor to wanting to walk away from things at, at all, um, because like honestly, I'm from Canada, so we don't like I'm, I'm I don't think I'm racist at all. Uh, I I believe strongly in stereotypes, and I think they're hilarious um, at times, but. Um, yeah, like it, it's like yeah. touch on that if you can. I, I don't know if I, I probably yeah, no, like definitely. screwed up the the posing definitely, of that question, um, but you handle that now. Yeah, yeah, definitely being black in a majority white sport. Um, you know, you just there's a lot of biases, you know, and whether people mean to or not, you know, it doesn't really matter in the sense. And so for me as a racer, and something my dad instilled in me as well is just yeah. It, it's understanding that for me to get a shot, I'm just going to have to be better, right? I'm just going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to make sure I'm at the track on time all the time. I'm, I'm going to have to ensure that there's nothing that anyone could say that, you know, might say that, you know, I, I'm lazy or that I didn't put in the work or, or that I may not deserve something. Um, with being black in a majority white sport, it, it kind of comes to, you know, this expectation that, um, Again, James, you have James Stewart as the benchmark, right? And here I am, and and I'm not James Stewart, right? You know, not not to my so, knowledge. Otherwise, this would probably get more. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, by no means close to James Stewart. And so, as African American, um, it's tough. You know, we knew that we always had to be legal in racing. You know that definitely would never cross those lines. Um, definitely knew that I just had to ensure that um, I kept a, a good name and a clean name because um, for instance, right, uh, with biases and thing, things of that sort, someone may not go to bat for me the same way they would for someone that might remind them of themselves. So it, even in negotiating contracts or, or trying to get another shot, Someone may not go the extra distance for me to ensure that, hey, this kid is rookie of the year. You know, hey, come on, we got to give him another shot. We, you know, maybe we'll just cut his salary this year and, and give him another shot. Um, that's where it, it plays a role. And so, yeah, no, it's it's not just outright racism, but we, we have biases. We all do, but these are definitely things that um, we're there and, and that we're aware of, but it's never an excuse that, I would allow myself to take, you know, it's never something that I would allow to say that's the reason. No, I, I just knew that I just had to, had to work harder, you know? And, and so by no means I, I just gave it every, everything I had, you know? And yeah, it, it could have played a part. Sure. You know, cool. But um, I just got to control what I can. And that's what, that's how I've always approached it and how my dad has had me approach it um, from, from day one. Is is that something that that your dad experienced at all as being like there's moto dads that get into it this that and the other thing? Do you think that maybe at some point 
Uh, he also felt the brunt of that as well. Uh, just some some disagreements that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, not necessarily disagreements. Everyone was always really you know nice at the track and stuff like that. But I like to hear that. We kind of just stayed. We we kind of just stayed to ourselves. Honestly, um, you know, even now I just kind of come from a different world than kind of um, what the main demographic of, of motocross does. It's just kind of different. So um, with that being said, no, I never had any issues. It's just, again, it's not what people do out in the light. It's kind of those implicit actions that you don't really think about. And, and you know, are we the family or the people to ever try and say, oh, you know, they did that because he's black or, or this and that? No, because it it's a cop-out you know, and, and the pride that I have within myself and my family does is, is the first look within and see what I can do better and, and let the cards lay where, where they may. Mm-hmm. No, I, I appreciate your, your take on that. Like I, I see the sport and people say, Oh, there's a lot of racism within the sport or there's this or there's that. And honestly, like I look at a guy like, uh, even Malcolm or James, um, and the fact that like, there's, they're both black guys and, and they're fan favorites. How in the sport, like there's always going to be racist people in general, but I don't think that the, the sport itself uh, necessitates a ton of racism because these guys are like literally so, like at some point, or certainly at one point, James Stewart was the number one most popular rider in the entire sport. Um, so like almost, almost to the point where almost like a unanimous decision, like so, sort of like, and I, um, I, I, I just I, I struggle to think that there's a lot of racism in a sport where um, the the top athlete and the most like beloved athlete uh, happen to be black. So, yeah, and I think you have to take into the context of um, how good James Stewart was as well, True. And, and even with Malcolm, right? So Malcolm didn't have to turn it on until he was on big bikes because he obviously had James as his older brother. So he was able to get, he was able to take that time to have fun. You remember they would have him on the, uh, you know, James's TV show and he would just be hanging out fishing and stuff like that. He, because of, of James, Malcolm had the time to then ride on that Suzuki team when he first started, you know, take a few years and jump from team to team, even try and go privateer. Yeah, At some point to end up Arma, Suzuki, JDR. I, I was watching some of his career last night on YouTube, and I'm like, wow, that guy's been around for a long time and did a lot of nothing for like three years. Yeah, and so because of, he's an example, and Jason Anderson is another great example of guys that were given the opportunity to develop and look at, look at them now. Mm-hmm. Where for me, because my parents don't come from money and I don't, I don't have an older brother that might have, set the pathway we knew that i had to show the results from a young age to even get the support to get to the end and that's that's the difference is meanwhile it took me two loretta lens championships to even get some help from a factory team um maybe it might be slightly different for someone else and that's it's a marathon you're talking about over 14 years so yeah we we have malcolm now but don't for a second believe that you know he could have done that without his brother because oh, he was yeah. able to wait until he, he was on in the B class to turn it on. Meanwhile, I had to consistently show the results from 
57 to 8 all the way until 85 to even get a, get a chance to get a shot. And that's and that's where the difference the difference lies. For sure, and I, I think that that you're totally right. I think uh, that a guy like Malcolm for sure got the benefit of the doubt more often than not because like he's he's James's brother. He's he, he they they look similar on the bike as far as style goes, or at least you can lead yourself to believe that, and you just like keep getting those chances. And, and with uh, with the right support and some yeah some great financial backing, uh, some pretty amazing things can happen. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with you on that one. Um, as far as like you said, you said earlier. I don't know if we were still recording at the time or not, but you said that the last time you rode was on a factory KTM, which is going back uh, a number of years already. Obviously, you completely had to focus on school uh, to to get that done. Um, at what point does do you have to satisfy that itch to get back on a dirt bike uh, and, and enjoy the sport? And 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 do you enjoy it as a fan today? Um. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I feel like I'll satisfy the itch in uh, probably about a year or so, two okay. years. I just get get through through this point in my life and try and get set up and try and get a house and, and things of that sort, get my career going. Um, but was I ever a fan of the sport? No, I I just love racing and riding. I've never been a fan of watching other people ride. Interesting. I enjoy racing and riding. I don't, you know, I'd be with Ricky and, and you know, Ryan, Dungey, and Jeremy, and Joey Zawachi, and, like, they're just people to me. Like, I, yeah, obviously they're really great at what they do, but I'm by no means a fan. I, I just enjoy racing and riding. It's what I've always loved to do, and so it's not something that I'm like, oh, man, I, I can't wait to watch this race or this is this and that. I mean, even growing up, like I want to be out there, you know, like this is, this is what I do in a sense. And so I can't say that I'm a fan of the, you know, watching Supercross and all that. And, you know, I'm a racer, you know, that's who I am. Fair enough. Uh, that, that's cool. Uh, there's, and that's sort of like, it's interesting to sort of get the, uh, the perspective of someone who's really in it. I feel like you guys, uh, especially in the hot, hot, the highest end of the amateur scene, you don't get to be like fans like me. Uh, like I, I wasn't very good. I'm still not very good. Um, and, and so I, I had to live vicariously through the guys who could go crazy fast. And, and I probably the reason why I probably wasn't very good is because I was spending more time reading the magazines and watching Verb Moto rather than figuring out where I can five five seconds on the track. Um, and and for you guys, you just kind of nose down, ass up trying to go as fast as humanly possible uh, for 14 years straight and then uh, try and make a name for yourself. Uh, not so much uh, watching uh, watching the heroes of the sport. I guess maybe a guy like AC is a bit of a, an anomaly in that because I think he is a, like a legitimate fan of the sport. But uh, for a lot of you, I, I don't think – because like, you guys are so busy racing and training, you're not going to pro nationals. You're not going to three supercrosses a year and stuff like that. No. Yeah, and – and uh yeah it doesn't help to again these are kids that i've raced you know growing up and you know obviously they're racing supercross and things of that that sort so as a as a racer and as a competitor you don't really enjoy watching your competition you know either win races or, or get top three that's not you know these are kids that you've raced with your whole life and obviously you're not there racing you know you've, you've taken a different path but 
you know, you're that's that was your competition, you know, that that could have been you, you know, at some point. Right? So you, when you think about it from that perspective, it, it's kind of hard to watch. Yeah. No, it's uh, you're you're totally right about that. Um so like when when you uh like do you still watch the races or do you watch them uh and, and also like let's just uh I'm talking about the uh the final round coming up supercross all all three titles are decided uh i i personally think that it's kind of funny that uh supercross can like builds up these championships that they always like come down to the absolute nail biting wire and uh the final round is basically a formality this year yeah no, I've uh I definitely I keep up with a little bit. Um, you know, I've definitely watched more this season than I have in past and you know, I'm definitely like um, you know, the Atlanta format that they had, kind of the, the outdoor supercross was interesting. Um I'll say that again, the four fifty title fight is has been very tight as well. Um you know, it's the two fifty East, you know, there's like four guys I think that look, seems like it's been decimated, but, um, or wait, no, sorry. Is that the West? Yeah. I forgot. That's the, West. the East. The West started okay. second. It was that don't even get yeah. started. Okay. Yeah. The first coast, okay, the yeah. one with Colt Nichols and nobody else in it. Yeah. That one's been, yeah, I don't, it's just crazy to me to see privateers getting, you know, sixth and fifth and main events. So that's, uh, that's different, but, um, no, yeah, the racing has been very tight. You know, obviously, to to run at that level, it's very stressful. Um, I tip my hat off to anyone that lines up because I know firsthand it's hard. You know, to me, everyone that decides to line up on that gate and and come to the race, I mean, they're a bad dude because, you know, I always relate this um, to outdoors. So, obviously, we know the the races are like 30, and it'll be in like 35 minutes, right? Well, whether you go fast or you go slow, you're still going to be in a lot of pain. Whether you know, whether you win the race or not, and so, you know, if you if you have the balls to, to go out there and line up with see the 40 fastest dudes in the country and go out there, I mean, I got to tip my hat to you because it's it's hard no matter which way you do it. Yeah, amen to that, man. Like, I I think that's the maybe the, the galvanizing feature of motocross is that uh, regardless of how fast you're going, there's this mutual respect between riders that if you're going your limit, however fast you can get around, whether your lap times are, are, are best in class or, or you find yourself over a lap down by the end of the moto. Uh, that's why we give those, those kind of nods and waves on the, as you're he- heading out of the track, because uh, it's not an easy sport and it can come up and bite you real quick. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's dangerous, and, and like we said, you know, it's not like we're getting health insurance or, or anything like that. So, yeah, you uh, if you have, you know, if you're out there, man, it's it's uh, I tip my hat off to you. Fair enough. So, last couple of questions I have for you here: Who are uh, some of if if you have a favorite sponsor, you can list them. But who who are some of your favorite sponsors that you had that like that. Uh, uh, you had throughout your career that uh, you just you really enjoyed their product or you enjoyed the the relationship you built with them. Um, I'd say um, out of everyone, uh, Fox Racing, uh, Todd Hicks, Aaron West, um, those those guys went above and beyond even from a young age, and I still talk to them now. You know, they still check in and, and talk to my family, and 
wishes Merry Christmas and happy birthdays. And, and, uh, by far out of all the sponsors I've had, you know, I can say that, uh, they were family, you know, they, it was, it was more than what results I may have put out on the track to them. And, and, uh, yeah, you know, you have Red Bull and stuff like that, but, um, you know, there, there's more to life than racing and, and for them to even now, you know, still stay in touch and, and see how I'm doing and checking on my family. It means a lot. And so, um, yeah, by far, you know, they're, they've, uh, they're the top. There you go. Like Fox, they've always been that pinnacle. They're the tip of the spear when it comes to, uh, style and, and, uh, just what the, uh, the aspirational brand for motocross. There's a few people who might disagree, but they've always been number one in my books. Um, Favorite teammate, somebody that you enjoyed riding with, someone that you enjoyed spending time with, and uh, um, yeah, some someone that you really enjoyed being around during your career. Um, one guy that uh, I really in uh, enjoyed being around. Um, I had quite a few, but uh, I bring up Jesse Nelson because um, you know obviously Jesse was top of the team when I first got on and and stuff like that but um jesse always took the time to you know obviously be a friend of me but but also be someone that i could kind of look up to and, and get advice from and and um you know he, every time he was around and, and we were going through things or training stuff like that he's someone that um always stayed positive you know he was always a positive force no matter where we were and and um, I can say he's definitely one of the, the best teammates I had just as far as being new on a team and new in an environment. And, and uh, you know, obviously looking to try and find where I could fit in. You know, he's one of the first people that reached out and say, hey, you know, come hang out and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I, that's definitely nothing that I've forgotten and, and I definitely don't don't take lightly at all. Fair enough. And this could be uh, uh, kind of a like a – could just be yourself, but of all the guys you rode with and and were teammates with, who is the best? Who's the best ladies man? Who who could actually uh, chat up the ladies? Uh, I assume it's probably yourself, but I could be totally wrong. It's Justin Hill. Um, man, he'd be surprised. We barely had time for the ladies. Oh come on, no. but uh, man, I'm trying to think. I think. Oh. See, they, well, everyone was in a relationship when, when I was on the team, so I can't, I, I can't really say. Without getting anyone in trouble? Know, I, yeah, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. So, we'll, you know, we'll keep it on the DL. All right, fair enough. We'll just say it's you then. Yeah, it's me. Fair enough. Like, there's tons of stories about junior hockey players showing up to, like, hotels, and there's already girls in the lobby. Did you, did you even see things like that happening in pro motocross? Well, for me, it was a lot different because my dad was always with me, you know? Mm. He, he's basically, yeah, he was my right-hand man. Wherever I was at, you know, my dad dad was there. So Cramping your style. You can say that I, yeah, you know, it, it, the girls, man, I really didn't get the chance to just because uh, my dad was always there, obviously, you know, trying to make sure I stayed focused and, and got the job done. So, um, yeah, I can't really say, say too much. All right, man. Well, this has been so much fun. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting with you. 
Um, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day, and uh, I appreciate you taking an hour and 35 minutes and change to uh, to walk us through the career, tell us the stories, and uh, and just get some like uh, some stories down about a guy that I don't think enough people really uh, know about. And uh, give you some insight into uh, the wild world of not only pro motocross, but also the amateur side as well. I think this was really cool for people. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad uh, Glad to definitely talk to you today and share a little bit of my story. And uh, hopefully I can uh, be some inspiration uh, to other people. You know, that's the goal. Awesome, man. Well, uh, do not hang up just yet. But for podcast sake, we're okay. going to cut it off right there.